I have had to really allow my my heart and my imagination to be shaped by seeing God as one who keeps company with us in the dark. Welcome to the Still Christian Podcast, where we retrace our steps through evangelical culture, finding a new way forward without abandoning our faith. I'm Katie. I'm Sarah. And we're Still Christian. Today we have invited a friend of ours, a friend of all of ours, because she was also here last season talking about spiritual disciplines. We have Diana Groover. This time we've brought Diana on to share about her experience with depression. And before we get into that, I just want to say hi, Diana. Thank you for being here. Hello. It's good to be here with you guys again. Before we get like really deep into everything, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, who are you? What's kind of your day-to-day life look like? My day-to-day life these days mostly involves chasing around my two young children who are four and two. Um, So I get to stay home with them most of the time, which is a real gift. Um, I'm also a writer. So my first book came out a couple of years ago at this point, and it was actually about depression and specifically people in church history who struggled with depression. So I get to live the mom life and also write and do some speaking on the side, which is really a joy that I get to do both of those things. Yeah, it's like your two greatest passions. Yeah. Tell us about the good news about your book recently. Oh, yeah. So it just recently was translated into Portuguese and a copy of it showed up at my house maybe a week ago, two weeks ago. That's like, I can't even imagine that feeling. For those that don't know, Diana's book, like you mentioned a minute ago, is about people in church history that dealt with depression. And the book is called Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. And sure, I'm biased, but even if I weren't, this is an objectively good book and I highly recommend it. You know, depression is not something that I personally have struggled with, and I found it very insightful and really worth reading. Diana, where can you buy the book? You can find it at my publisher, University Press. You can find it on Amazon, pretty much anywhere the books are sold. You should be able to find it. Your book is the fruit of your own experience of depression. So I am wondering if you'd be willing now to share with us just the story of your experience of depression. So I think it started before I really had the words to identify what it was, but it really came to a head our senior year of college. We were all in school together. And, you know, I think for some people, it's both empowering and shocking to be given a word for the thing that you're feeling. It's uh, empowering in the sense of, oh, I can now identify what this thing is. But it also, for me at least, was kind of hard to wrap my mind around, oh, okay, I'm depressed. All right. (laughs) What do I do 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 with that? So, you know, being being a full-time student, trying to slug through pretty demanding classes and, you know, staying involved in activities, but just feeling like everything required way too much energy and just did not have any of the same interest that it did before. And along with that, I mean, we went to a small Christian school and I'm not sure how much you guys have talked about this in in this space, but I think at least to my perception, there was a lot of 
I've referred to it as spiritualized perfectionism. And so in addition to just the difficulty of being depressed, struggling to get out of bed, struggling to sleep, struggling to think clearly and keep up with just life. I also felt a lot of guilt, you know, as a Christian that I shouldn't feel like this or I should be able to find like my faith should somehow be a superpower that I could kind of power through or pull myself out of of this feeling. And as anyone who has experienced depression would know that doesn't work that way. And thankfully, I had a good support system around me that was helpful to support me in that and also knock some sense into me when I needed it. And between that and medication and just, I think, the grace of God, eventually that lifted. And it's come back in different seasons since then. That was definitely the worst. But it's something I know, even if it's not actively as overwhelming as it was then, it's kind of there in the background. And so it's been something I've needed to be really aware of and conscious to take steps to try to keep myself as healthy as possible and know when I need to ask for help or get back on medication again or whatever combination of those things are to try to never let it get back to that that point again. So when it first came up for you, when you first faced depression and maybe you were starting to realize like what it was, I feel like I hear you saying that maybe you felt like you were a bad Christian, or even if you didn't think that like explicitly, I'm hearing what you're saying and even remembering it to a degree and being very confused myself because I didn't know anything about it at the time and didn't know like really what was going on with you. But would you agree that there's kind of this, there was at that time based on how old we were, you know, we were college age. And even I think to this day in Christian culture, kind of a morality around this and like definitely a stigma of if you are depressed or feeling depressed that your faith isn't strong enough? Oh, 100% yes. And no one at the time ever said that explicitly to me. Thankfully, I know I've, I've heard a lot of people's stories that people have actually said that to them, which obviously causes a lot of pain and just adds another layer of the guilt that I think a lot of people experience just as a symptom of depression. But yeah, that was something that I had absorbed somehow implicitly that being this way, feeling this way meant I was doing something wrong in my faith. Where does faith play a part in all of this because it's not as simple as saying your faith is weak and therefore you're depressed, but there is a spiritual component as well, right? Yeah. And that can be difficult, I think, for people to be able to separate because I think for some people, there's definitely symptoms that involve their spiritual life. So the way that I've thought about that is... So when you're depressed, at least in my experience and the experience of most of the people that I've talked to, there's kind of this feeling of separation from other people. Like I remember at the time I wrote this little personal essay kind of thing, which 
I never really did anything with. But I described it as feeling like I was stuck inside a glass cage. So everything was kind of hearing it through the echo of people's voices from outside of that. No one could actually reach in and touch me. You know, you're kind of in this envelope and no one can really reach in and penetrate that. And that is a symptom of depression, that feeling of distance and isolation. And so if I would feel that with people that actually could physically touch me, I shouldn't be completely shocked that that would happen with God as well, where I would feel distance or it would feel like I couldn't hear him or experience his presence in the way that I maybe had in other seasons or in the past. But I think it's difficult for people to parse that out because it's as if, well, I should, that shouldn't be the case, right? Or you have these messages coming from the outside that says, well, if you don't feel God's presence with you in the midst of your suffering, it must be because you're not faithful enough or you're not pursuing him enough or, you know, whatever, however that's articulated. But I think it's just, it's a symptom. Like it's, it's a part of, of what that experience is like. It's painful, but it doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. What does that do to your faith when the person you would rely on feels gone or you perceive that you've been abandoned by the one who said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? What does faith look like when God feels absent? Yeah. So I think then it was definitely disorienting. I think at any point in time, it's deeply painful to want or to know that if if I could just find some way to have that experience of feeling God's presence or his comfort, that I could survive whatever this season of suffering is, whether that's depression or anything else. And to feel like that is absent or being withheld. Not that it is, but that's what it feels like. It feels like you're in your deepest moment of need and he's turned his back is kind of the, you know, the experiential feeling of it. I don't think that's true, but it's deeply painful. I think it leads to a lot of questions and a lot of tears, which for me usually is a lot of frantic journaling at various hours of the night. But I think one thing that was really helpful to me in that season, and I think was definitely, I can look back on as part of God's provision and presence with me in that. And I think started to help shape some of my theology in a more helpful way was the church that I was a part of at the time. It's this little Anglican church and the rector there was the most grace saturated and obsessed person that I have ever met. And to go there every week and hear a different message that it was never about being good enough, that it was never about measuring up or getting it all together, but it was always, always coming with my need to the cross and finding God waiting there with open arms. Every week was this refreshing balm to my soul. And I think a really good anchoring point for me that, you know, the gospel is never something that I graduate from. It's never something that I mature past. It's always something I learn to come back to with more and more dependence and more and more awareness of my need. And so that was really helpful for me to start to reframe some of those thoughts in the midst of that season. 
I have to say as a bit of a side note, because we've each of us at this point has mentioned this church because we all ended up going to the same church toward the end of college. It's really amazing to hear our different experiences of it Mm -hmm. and just how beautiful and formative and challenging in a good way and redemptive Mm -hmm. it was for each of us. And I love that that church and that priest was that they were a huge part of you being refreshed and finding healing. And just I love hearing how that message of grace touched you in that season. Yeah. And that's the name of the church, you know, it's called Grace Anglican and it it really (laughs) embodied that it embodied its name. In some ways, I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that question of how do you engage in faith when God feels absent? I may write a book about it at some point because I feel like that's something that I'm still trying to figure out for myself, that there's no easy answer to that. But one of the things that I continue to come back to, I've talked about this a lot as I've shared about my book, is that I have had to really allow my my heart and my imagination to be shaped by seeing God as one who keeps company with us in the dark. And sometimes we feel that and sometimes we don't, but that is such a bedrock truth regardless of what my emotions are saying or what I'm experiencing, that that is true. And so to be able to anchor myself in saying, it does not matter how deep this goes or how far away I feel, he is present with me here. One of the Psalms that's kind of helped that really soak in is Psalm 139. There's this beautiful bit at the end that talks about where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from you? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. And it talks about how even the darkness is not dark to God. Even the darkness is light to him. And I used to think about that when I was younger as more of a oh, well, I'm trying to escape from him and there's nowhere that I can escape, even if I wanted to, right? Which <laughs> is kind of also true. Yeah, me too. But now I see it as a word of comfort. The highest of moments mm-hmm. in my life, he is present with me. And in the lowest steps, he is present with me. And there is no way that I can get so lost that he is not already there and has not already gone there ahead of me. Regardless of whether I sense his presence or not, that is true. And that's something that can hold me steady whenever maybe I don't have the same feelings or assurances that I would like to have or have had in other seasons, but it's there to to anchor me. We talk about retracing our steps through evangelical culture. And I feel like for me, growing up in evangelical Christian culture, it was all about the feelings, spiritual highs, and the worship nights that we had in college. That was not that it was like completely phony, but at least for me and my experience, it was very much about chasing a spiritual high mm-hmm. and a feel-good experience. Yeah, I'm curious what the two of you think about that. Is this something that it's just because of how old we were at the time or like a matter of spiritual maturity? Or is this something that we were taught even implicitly? I think it's some of both. I think there's something about being young that makes it it's exciting and it's thrilling. And I think that part of it is maturity. And, you know, people at the time, and I would have said at the time, it's not about a spiritual high, right? You got to have this thing that's sustaining you. That's right. not just these peaks and you 
are chasing after it by going to this concert or this worship night. Or I would have said that then in, in high school and college. But I think there's still some of that there. You still kind of hope for it a yeah, little bit. Yeah, you kind of hope for it. But I think some of it is uh, like a spiritual tradition. I've studied a decent amount in church history, and I'm thinking about the various awakenings that even occurred in our country over the last couple of centuries. And regardless of age, there was a big emphasis on this experiential movement of God. And that gave some kind of validity to someone's testimony. Especially as American Christians, I think we have inherited a lot from the traditions that really came to light in the first and second great awakening. And we are the descendants of that. And I think um, still carry on some of those emotionalism sort of trends. That's my opinion. Part of the problem with that is we expect the spirit to move the same way as the spirit did in the past. And if that's not happening, we think something's wrong. So I think that's part of it. But I also wonder if the honeymoon phase with God is a necessary part of a deep and lasting relationship with God, just like it is in marriage. If you're not ecstatic about who you're dating and who you're marrying, and if you're not excited to spend time with them and like feel their presence, and then it's probably not going to last. I think ironically, the things that we now see as most shallow are the things that paved the way for depth and made it lasting. So as much as I kind of want to look back on that and roll my eyes and be like, how many times did I raise my hands during came from heaven to earth? That's really far back. That's far back. I didn't raise my hands during that song. But all that to say, I think the honeymoon phase is still a phase, even though when I look back on my relationship with Drew, I'm like, oh, we knew nothing, but it was sweet. When I, I said something along the lines of what you just said in regards to when I was a younger Christian and I rolled my eyes at myself and you said that you found it endearing. I thought that was really wise of you to say. So Diana, when you were at your lowest in this journey of depression and suffering through depression, what was it that got you through? You know, I think some of it is just, and I don't say this lightly, I think some of it is just the grace of God because there were plenty of moments where, and I've heard, I know many people would articulate it this way. I never got to the point where I wanted to die, but I definitely got to the point where living life felt like too much. Like I'd much rather just go to sleep and just sleep. And I think the fact that I kept getting up was not something that I found some kind of magic formula to figure out how to do that. Some of it was medication. I think it finally kind of, it started really kicking in in a helpful way at the time that I was also bottling out at the lowest point. I had a friend who Literally, the one time I skipped class and just was sleeping in my apartment forced me to get out of bed and go sit in our little common area. And I think may have also made sure people were there to babysit me. And, you know, at the time I found that to be very irritating. But I think if you have enough of those people that keep saying, like, I know you don't feel like there's any reason to get out of bed, but you're going to get out of bed. And I'm going to make sure that there are people with you so that even if you don't really feel it internally, you can see it tangibly that you're not alone. You're not by yourself. 
I think that all of that starts to build up layers. And as I've thought about what do you do with someone who's there, who's that low, what would you say to them? I think that's the only thing that we can really keep holding out to each other is regardless of what these voices in your head are telling you or what this deep despair, this numbness is telling you, this is not the end of you. This is not the end of your story. A pastor that I met once said, The end of the story and the worst case scenario for every follower of Jesus is glory and seeing him face to face. And so I think the more that we can repeat that to each other, like this is the darkness is never the end. And many of us do get to experience that in this lifetime, thank God. (laughs) But for those who don't, to keep living with that in mind and to know that, you know, People-wise, we are not alone in this. Spiritually, we're not alone in this. And I think we just need people to keep repeating that over and over and over again and embodying that, um, you know, incarnating that truth in the way that they keep showing up. I think that's all that we can do. And I think there's just, you know, in my own experience, there's just these little layers of these little moments that people probably don't even remember. I mean, I would come up and sit in your apartment sometimes. You guys probably don't even remember that. Like I would sit in the little chair in the corner of your, and I like couldn't focus to read or study, but there was something where I was in a room with other people who were actually living and breathing and I knew cared about me. And so that was one of these little whispering moments of, you know, you're not, you're not actually alone. I'm remembering when we were in college and you were going through depression, I remember you talking about God feeling far and that it was clear that you were still looking for him, but it was like you couldn't find him. Whereas someone else might say, I don't want to read my Bible. I'm depressed. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to go to church. And someone that hears that might think, oh, that person has walked away from God because they have no interest rather than understanding the root cause cause of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's being very generous towards, you know, but that, you know, possibly. Yeah. I think among Christians, we forget about passages like in Isaiah that Jesus is a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. And Diana, I think about how much you just didn't want to be alone in your darkness and how Jesus at his lowest moment praying in the garden asks his friends to be with him at night, which I think is just such a beautiful picture of what we're invited to do with God. Like the fact that God wanted us to be with him at his lowest moment. He knows what it's like when you need people like that and they can't even stay awake with you. Yeah. He knows what it's like to be let down. That is a a word of comfort, I think, as far as someone that understands our grief and our suffering. And then the fact that he is the one who will never sleep in that moment when we need him. So Diane, I feel like you have a lot of perspective now that it sounds like if and when depression rears its ugly head again, you have tools in place and you have perspective on how to respond to it. But when you first faced it, how is it that you didn't abandon your faith? How is it that you were still a Christian, even having gone through that? And how is it that you still are today? 
I don't know of any other source of hope than what I have found in the gospel and in Jesus. I mean, to to be completely blunt, I don't know that I would have survived depression if I wasn't a Christian, both from a sense of it gave me a reason to keep living, um, that my life had a purpose and had a meaning. And even if that felt pretty useless to me at various moments was kind of part of that theological underpinning that was true and and was um, did give value to my life and has given value to my life even in deeply painful moments. But to believe in a God who is a resurrecting God, who is relentlessly in the work of bringing life out of dead things, I don't know of any other source of hope like that that can allow you to endure darkness and endure pain and stare it in the face and continue to say, this is not the end of the story. I am not one that says, oh, I'm so glad that I walked through this. This was wonderful. Or or even the, oh, it was all for a purpose, right? Was it? Well, yeah, but... Uh, you know, that's not that's not the way that I typically think through the various forms of suffering I've experienced. But I have learned things there about what it, it means to cling to the hope of resurrection in the face of things in myself that feel very dead. And I don't I have not found that anywhere outside of the Christian faith. So some people, you know, might look on that and say, well, it's, um, you know, it's a therapeutic tool for you, your faith. I, I mean, I, I think it's it's truer and deeper than that. But there is this sense that it's something that I have clung to because I needed to. You know, I've, I've needed that. I've needed that source of hope. And I have yet to find it anywhere else. Diana, thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for still being our friend. I am very thankful for the way that God has done a redemptive work with your story. The book that you have written, I think is a beautiful, tangible product of that, that came out of a really dark time in your life. So anyway, thank you for being faithful to that work. Thank you for sharing it with us and for being here and sharing your story. Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in this conversation with Diana. As a reminder, you can check out her book, Companions in the Darkness, at ivp.com, Amazon, and anywhere books are sold. To close, Diana, I'd love to invite you to read a Bible verse that has been a light to you in dark times. Why don't I just read that middle passage from Psalm 139? It's starting in verse 7, so it's kind of partway through. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you.